Poems were a way to break through the emotional hard pan, a way to weep again. The poem became imprinted in me, brought to life whenever I was lost to the sun's sight. Throughout the next many years of immense pain, this poem glimmered in the recesses of my being. Other poems soon joined it, a canon of collected words I brought into the underland, tucked like mantras, talisman, and prayers into the crevices of my body's wailing wall. With poems, I don't have the answers to years of unsolved questions. Contradictions can just be. With poems, I write to the end of the taproot. And then I notice that the curiosity extends even beyond the seeable root, and that I don't have to see or know or understand it all, that I can't. And that is wonderful. I am upside down on the couch and it is okay. In a poem, I can be the hungry Honduran child who is loved and the wealthy mother who is fed but lonely. Theater first emerged when Greek playwrights such as Sophocles, Aeschylus, and Euripides focused on tales of deception, greed, fate, predestination, free will, good and evil, hubris, and death. It was not uncommon to find encounters with the supernatural. At annual festivals, the Greeks presented very public theater to honor their god, Dionysus, while attempting to understand the relationship between humans and their multiple deities. William Shakespeare blended history with human failures and follies, and often, as in Hamlet, where religion and the supernatural danced within the character's psyches, influencing their actions and their ends. The plays were often prophetic or cathartic or both. The early plays offered universal themes, not unlike those in the pronouncements of the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount, the Tao, the Bhagavad Gita, the words of the Dalai Lama or Confucius or Jesus Christ or Gandhi or Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King, the writings of Charles Dickens, Plato, or Mary Oliver. Hey there, Dunker Punks. It's Matt Riddle again, he, him pronouns, pastor of the Arlington Church of the Brethren, with episode three in our series on Theopoetics. You just heard from Julia Baker-Swan and Carol Davis, respectively. Julia and Carol are separated by more than 30 years in age and have backgrounds and resumes as diverse, yet also share plenty in common, including a deep faith, not in a strictly ordered God, but in this God beyond even what we may name. A God who understands if we live with contradictions and understands how we live with our failures and follies. They are also about to share something exciting together, a graduation. In fact, we just heard them both read from work they've done while attaining a master's in theopoetics and writing from Bethany Theological Seminary. This is the third of four episodes about Theopoetics, our first ever Dunker Punk series on the topic. 
If you heard the last few episodes, uh, this will be a brief review. If you've missed them or just enjoyed them so much, you want more than a review, I invite you to go back and listen to those episodes for the first or second or 10th time. In the first episode of this series, we discussed the breakdown of that first phase of life, a box that offers us order and an orientation. Yet we find in life, uh, some people may consciously choose to leave that ordered space, and many others feel shoved from it against their own will. So many people find themselves at this precipice of asking tough questions. It can even feel like a loss of faith. But yet there might be something that remains. Perhaps a God beyond a God we've previously named. In the second podcast in this series, we explored a second phase of life together, or at least we tried. What might it look like to accept a loss of faith, yet realize all we've lost is a previously named version of our faith? This second phase of life or faith is named by a variety of people smarter than I uh, as either disorder disorientation, or even deconstruction. And yet, as we deconstruct, we might be opening ourselves up to something new, something more, something more profound. Maybe not our old faith, maybe not even our old God, or at least the God that we used to name, Remember that prayer from Meister Eckhart, if you've been listening to the series? Oh God, beyond the God we've named. There's something beyond our understanding, a, a mystery, something too profound for words. Recognizing that even our naming of God is only an attempt to refer to something unnameable. That a healthy faith is, is more than a list of descriptors and definitions, if it even is that at all. But we're about to invite the two people you heard at the front of this episode, Julia and Carol, back to the conversation as we explore together what it might look like to explore a new faith. A faith in a God beyond the God we used to name even beyond the God we're naming now as we step into the profound mystery of the beyond where surely the divine resides. Julia and Carol and myself will try to help us understand all this journey from disorder to reorder, from disorientation to reorientation, from deconstruction to reconstruction. Or at least we'll explore some poetics or habits of storytelling that might help. Among each of their impressive backgrounds, we'll introduce Julia Baker Swan as the author of the wonderful collection of original poems titled, The Moon is Always Whole. And Carol Davis as the artistic director of Spoon River College Community Chorus. As each speak throughout the course of this panel, remember that Carol is the artistic director and Julia is the poet. Mm -hmm.
Welcome to the conversation, Julia and Carol. Is this your first time appearing on a Dunker Punks podcast? It is mine. Mine too. Yeah. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for joining. Carol, you did know you are an avid subscriber, though. I am. And I do enjoy listening to uh, the different podcasts and the different opinions and so on. Very interesting. Very fun. Well, I'm happy to uh, offer you a Dunker Punks podcast with your own voice on it. And thank you so much to Julia and Carol for joining. Uh, First off, I thought we might explore this term, theopoetics. Listeners of this series have uh, tuned in over the last couple of podcasts where we've used the word a few times, uh, not too often. We've sort of hinted around about what it might mean without ever really trying to define it too strictly. I wonder if it might be hard to define in part because the word, sort of like uh, the topic it refers to, isn't a strict definition, but invites us into a mystery, something sort of beyond even the word itself. Uh, That said, um, Carol, I understand you did make an effort recently to write out a short definition. Could you read that for us? I'd be happy to, and I actually call this theopoetics perhaps defined. Theopoetics, by the very nature of what it entails, is difficult to refine and define. Theopoetics opens an artistic pathway to explore the divine in ways that provoke thought, discussion, and action. The art may be expressed metaphorically, anecdotally, symbolically, or allegorically. Theopoetics evolves from poetry, storytelling, music, visual art, and theater live performance. It may be experienced individually or collectively. Theopoetics serves not as an over-explanation, but as an enlightenment, creating a space in which discovered ambiguities may be interpreted and celebrated. In essence, an under-explanation in which moments freely mix through the past, the present, and the beyond. A quantum physics artistic adventure. Reflections of the past bounce off mirrors of the present, flash into the future, and ricochet back again. Theopoetics may emerge within a poem that speaks to social injustice, but uses nature as its theme. On a canvas of visual art depicting shadows dwelling underneath a hidden forest path. In a musical composition, where words are emotions supported atop pillars of melodies. A story a parable, or a fable plopped into an imagined world. Historical tales reconfigured. Plays or musicals soaring above the lights, the laughter, the applause. Theopoetics burst forth from within the soul and swirl beautifully about like the aurora of Alaska's northern lights. So interesting and beautiful. Uh, Julia, what do you think of Carol's perhaps definition? Oh, I think it's an embodiment of theopoetics in itself. It's beautiful. Um, What really shimmered to me hearing at that time was um, the naming of opening an artistic pathway to explore. And I think that key word of explore, that theopoetics is not... Yeah, to me, it invites so much permission for walking the pathways of our lives externally and inner pathways and noticing where where connections are made, what 
what draws us, where, what things are in conversation with one another, and then weaving those conversations together, bringing them together. And that to me, it's like a pathway that for me often feels like a circle or it's not, it's not necessarily trying to get to a known destination, but like keeps, or maybe a swirl, a spiral. It keeps spinning in conversation with itself. Um, there, yeah, I am doing theopoetics in itself, using the metaphor and image, even in the defining of it, which feels like really all we can do and what Carol beautifully did. Yeah. I'm fascinated as you're, you're talking, Julia, as we, um, if we say in that sort of first phase of life or faith that it is strictly defined, it's quantifiable, and as we're moving into this possible third box, it's interesting to consider that faith might be an exploration, mm -hmm. that we never fully arrive and we just sort of walk in these circles. I love this sentence, uh, reflections of the past bounce off mirrors of the present, flash into the future and ricochet back again, this process that is always moving and never quite settled. Do you think it's possible to have a faith that is a constant circling, is a constant exploration and never quite settled? I see nodding heads uh, for the people on the podcast. Carol, what do you think about uh, Julia's uh, explanation uh, or thoughts? Well, I'm a huge fan of Julia's work. And I think, I think it'd be interesting for your um, your listening audience to understand that not only do we come from different backgrounds and experiences, but I think that we are both on this theopoetic path. And it's important to know that we are more than 30 years apart in age. And so this, this journey that we are all on, that you're speaking of and how it can revolve and be reimagined and, and in the theater world, we call that reinterpretation. Um, that it is this constant ongoing process. Um, Julia was just talking about, you know, the swirls and the circles. And um, it, I have, uh, I'm very impressed with something that she does that you can't see on a podcast, but she walks in nature and she, she creates these using pebbles and, and whatever flowers and, and twigs and so on are there. She creates, oftentimes I've seen them, there are these circles or these, are these um, spirals that then they become these very beautiful things that she leaves there in, in the path so that the next person who comes to see it could say, oh, I wonder what that means and think about it and reflect on it. And that's what she does in her poetry as well. And I, I think, you know, is, is it faith if it doesn't do this? I mean, it's, it's impossible to live a life without wondering if we are doing something right, or if that is the correct answer, or, you know, it, it, I guess it's safe to be within a, in a place that this is right, and this is wrong, and this is should, and this is shouldn't but it's not even realistic. It's not the lives that we can live. And, and I have to think about, you know, even Jesus himself, you know, he had a few doubts there for a few, for a few short moments, right? Do we really have to do this, God? You know, that prayer in Gethsemane. So I think that, um, yes, I think the answer is that that's exactly um, what 
theopoetics is and, and what we're trying to, to offer to people. Yeah, I would so agree or just what rises in me to say, is it still faith if it includes uncertainty? I would say even more so, or that's what it is, that it our lives are not linear. Our experiences, our bodies are. And so we need, yeah, we need conversations, explorations that allow us to engage that. And what to me, the art pieces I do that Carol's time out, ephemeral art, what I love is then coming back to the piece later and noticing the way that it changes. And that to me feels like Theopoetics is this space of being with, and our faith is being with the process. And it's acknowledging each part of the process is beautiful. Each question is beautiful. I love how you two are describing this so well. Um, I think as we enter into the space of faith, if we experience something that only ever comforts us and defines life in a way we're still experiencing like the world's version trying to refer to something profound right um and so getting to that deeper thing and in particular i'm thinking about this journey between these phases or boxes once someone lives with doubts they might ask themselves the question you know, at some point, I might be willing to explore faith again, but I'm not sure these doubts will ever leave me, which is why I find this sentence so compelling, um, Carol, that quote, theopoetics serves not as an over explanation, but as an enlightenment, creating a space in which discovered ambiguities may be interpreted and celebrated. And so as we make that first leap from order to disorder, those doubts feel threatening until we kind of take them on as a whole identity. And then we might feel sort of stuck with them. And it, it, what would it mean for us to think that these questions, these doubts can even be celebrated and reinterpreted and have a proper context in the place of a reconstructed faith? On this note, um, Carol, you noted in your thesis um, that the theme for a theater symposium you attended in 2013 was titled Ritual, Religion, and Theater. Uh, first of all, I would take that seminary class. Um, but second of all, this it just sounds so fascinating to me, uh, especially as a former high school dramatic actor. That's where my career ended, but it still gave me a love for the theater. And now as a pastor, and so you're hitting ritual religion theater, the highlights of my passions. Uh, you noted the key note address was delivered by a Dr. Tom F. Driver, who described theater's unique purpose as, quote, the blessed assurance of perhaps. The yeah. blessed assurance of perhaps. Right. And I and what that what that why that struck me so um so hard is that um I, I, I was raised in a very uh conservative um uh religion uh denomination that um I, I, I did everything I was supposed to do, right? Uh, I, I earned the badges and that you could get for being in a, in a certain training union group or whatever. And I attended everything. And yet I just felt as if it, I, it was never reaching me, but I was a child and that's where my mother went. And so that's where I went 
to to church. But then as um, the in my formative years, the the late 60s and early 70s, there was just an incredible amount of um, dissonance, difference, uh, experiences, uh, things to be learned out there. And so that's when I first started having this, well, wait a minute, that almost seems more like me than how I was raised. But talk about guilt when, you know, to, to go through that process, and especially at that age. And so this whole idea of the blessed assurance of perhaps, to me, is that opening of, of Jesus and God and the divine saying, you know, all, all that's being asked of you is that you try to, to find who you are and the path you're going to be on and what the spiritual experience means to you and to do that truthfully and perhaps you may be right and perhaps you may not be right and you do have to do what you were talking about Matt and, and that is to go back and look again and again and and there's joy when you make new discoveries and you find other people who are on those same journeys and yes you celebrate it because we are all individuals but we're all on this same path I truly believe all the time. Julia, you focus on poetry rather than theater. Uh, at one point in your thesis, you used a quote that I liked. Uh, poetry is a tool for rewonderment, a way to relearn the grammar of animacy. Is this the blessed assurance of perhaps? Can you say more about uh, the value of rewonderment? Yeah, uh, to me, wonder... And wonder, I was musing about the word because I love words <laughs> as a poet. And thinking about wonder can be both that kind of space of awe at something, but then also wonder as in like, I wonder about that curiosity. Um, so kind of mirroring the perhaps there, just that questioning space. And I feel like for me, what poetry does is it... Um, and theopoetics is that it, it engages all of that. It engages the curiosity, the awe, the wonder. And for me, wonder feels like, all of that feels like antidote to despair or to stuckness or um, as we're saying, being stuck in that box. It feels like the question, when I ask myself, I'm curious about that. Um, rather than like a set known, or when I open up the space of seeing something that I might pass all the time, but seeing it from a space of marveling at or gratitude, um, or seeing everything I use in the quote, grammar of animacy, um, which is taken from um, Robin Wall Kimmerer's work in Braiding Sweetgrass. And she talks about that's from the Potawatomi language, which everything in the earth, most of the language are verbs. So they're alive and animate in ways that English has maybe forgotten. And so I'm really curious about how do we um, live into words and just our way of being that isn't acknowledging the life breath in everything. And that feels like connected to the life breath of 
oh, these questions that that and the the divine flowing within and through it all and you opening to a posture of life that yeah, I love that the blessed assurance of perhaps that is um, resting in it's all okay, it's all good. Let's explore, let's ask. I hear you both um, exploring together this concept uh, that, you know, in an earlier version of our lives, we might have experienced curiosities or questions or doubts as negative. And then at some point we might risk to ask them and that brings us to a new place, but you're both describing this beautiful place of what would it mean for our questions and our curiosities, maybe even our doubts to bring us joy? that we have the freedom to explore them. Uh, as I've sometimes said, when, when people ask if, uh, if God, uh, what would God think about our doubts? And I've always taken to responding, any God worth believing in can understand our doubts. Uh, it's not a God I would care to believe in otherwise. And so what would it mean even as you're both describing to find joy in the exploration? that maybe we never arrive again at a black and white version of life. Maybe the question perhaps is enough uh, to have curiosity and awe as an anecdote to despair. Uh, I was so fascinated in your thesis, Julia, talking about this sort of exploration. Um, you, you talked in your your earlier poetic works that when you started the poem, you knew where it was ending. And, and now as you write poetry or engage in poetic efforts, you sort of start it and you don't always know where the journey is, is going. And I think that is a fascinating model to, th to think about life or faith. Can you say more about this? Oh, definitely. Yeah, poetry has been such a teacher <laughs> to me for living. Um, yeah, I think I, well, I grew up in the Mennonite church and was very much kind of had this mantle of needing to save the world. And um, I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll do that with my poems. And so I had this idea of where the po what the poem should say, communicate. But then as the more and more I learned, um, to trust the blank page, I often say, like poetry, it necessitates waiting and sitting in front of the blank page and trusting, trusting whatever comes, trusting the leap between, oh, this image is rising, this metaphor is rising, and trusting that path, that exploration, rather than, um, it's actually kind of boring when we have a set destination of where we know there's no discovery there. And so I, that feels like touching on the joy of you were talking before. Well, curiosity and all of that is just so much, it, it brings joy because there's discovery and newness. So yeah, I just, I mean, on, there's a constant conversation for me between on and off the page in my life of how, what poetry teaches me about how do I stand at the edge spaces of the unknown in my life, the blank spaces of the unknown, because that's what life is, <laughs> um, and how to trust that by continuing to follow the curiosity, following the energy of um, 
beauty that that something will emerge on the page that something will emerge on the page of my life if I keep um, engaging it. I'm reminded of a beautiful book I just read. Carol, if you haven't read this, this is my suggestion to you or Julia or the listeners of the podcast as well. But I just know Carol's theater background, God, Improv and the Arts of Living uh, by Marianne McKibben Dana. There's a quote that she uses in there I like. It resonated with me as you were just talking, uh, shimmered for me, as you would say, Julia. Um, she says, faith is not jumping from point A to point B. Faith is jumping from point A. As you talk about trusting the blank page, you're referring to writing, um, experiencing as you write the rising metaphors, um, the uh, edge spaces of the unknown, all of these metaphors to describe what it means to explore as you write. But I don't think you're really talking about writing, right? This is a great experience, as you said, a teacher, a metaphor into something more. I think you're talking about life. Uh, there's something universal about this exploration, this experience of, of trusting what may come, this re-wonderment. This might, again, perhaps be the blessed assurance of perhaps just jumping from point A. Am I, am I describing this parallel between uh, life and writing well in your experience? Oh, completely, yes. Yeah, I taught a workshop or led a workshop a few years ago of what does poetry teach us about living well and exploring, yeah, these very things about um, being able to sit with the unknown, about tr showing, not telling, trusting that. And yeah, I just feel like poet writing poetry has made me a whole person a more whole and healthy person with how I engage living life because it is engaging this trust. And it, it reminds me of what um, our professor here, Scott Holland says in many classes that it's really, it's not just about composing the verse, it's about composing a life. And that's what I feel like theopoetics is really, uh, it's, it's way of being, it's a way of moving through the world and it's, embodied in all these different creative outlets it's the like the vehicle the vessel the conversation that it's in but really it's how we are um living in each moment through them what posture we're taking and so yes the parallels are there all over <laughs> and i love it i could talk a lot about that <laughs> Julia, thank you for naming that. I'm so I, I celebrate that for you, writing poetry has been this teacher. But um, there might be some people listening who aren't going to write a poem, but you just named that doesn't matter. We all have something, a hobby or some endeavor we're passionate about. We're talking about an approach to life. Uh, how we might re-wonder and embrace those edge spaces and let the metaphors rise in whatever endeavor we're taking. Um, Carol, you, uh, speaking of different metaphors, have lived a little bit in the theater, and you're quick to note uh, the theater is a good story, and so there are many ways to tell good stories. As I think about uh, the theater 
or uh, the, a movie, though, I think of it in, in my experience in the audience as having an ending. At some point, the curtain falls and the screen fades to black. Uh, I'm also reminded, though, of something um, Scott Holland shared with us in our last podcast, that uh, we tell a story to invite another story, particularly in this conversation about um, one particular version of faith, the loss of that earlier faith, and the reformation of a sort of a new faith that dawns on me uh, to speak plainly. Maybe someone had a bad experience or reaction in church, and they leave that and they think, whatever that was, that is not for me. Whatever God they named, that is not the God that I will live with. But maybe they're watching a movie or a play or hearing a story in any other way, and something inside of them stirs. I've experienced this. Um, and you think, okay, that is something I like. I resonate with whatever that in was. Do you think there's the sense that one uh, story being told, quote, on the screen or stage might invite people to respond with their faith, even, or lives? Well, first of all, we are nothing but stories, are we? I mean, I tend to think of our lives as, as like television episodes that, you know, there's always these moments that we're in and then something happens and we're changed by that story. And we move into the next story and the next story. I mean, even our whole lives of the progress that we, that we do, you know, we go to school and then we get out of school and then we have careers and we may or may not marry, you know, those are all stories. And it's, what do people do when they get together, do they do they do they give a list of each other? You know, do they do like laundry lists or grocery lists? No, the first thing we all do is share these stories, right? And it's what connects us. And I think what's important to remember is that no matter what happens, we can't stop the stories. The stories just keep coming, even if we wanted to. So I was thinking about this uh, this movie that I watched with my two and a half year old granddaughter Autumn. It's it's Frozen too. And I am completely enamored by the song Into the Unknown. You know, how, how Elsa steps in and she has no idea what's calling her, but she's finally willing to do no matter what, to step into the unknown to find out what that is. So do I believe that a movie, because I'm a movie nut, do I believe that a movie can change someone's lives or or make them uh, look at the divine differently? Do I think a play can do that? I absolutely do. I will tell you that, that that journey that I was on in high school when I was trying to decide which direction to go was the day that I saw the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. It changed everything for me. And it was a musical, you know? So it it it. I think what's really important is that we understand that movies and theater and books and poetry and all of the things that, that we call theopoetics, we have to constantly remind ourselves that if we tell people how things are or how they're supposed to be and give them no room, then we're gonna get that age old uh, fight or flight from people, right? When what we need is we need to 
to find ways that don't have labels for people or 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 their experiences we we need to get away from the us versus them and you can do that in movies and theater because they're watching someone else perhaps have a similar experience to them or going through a journey but they don't have to say that's me you know they say but that's like me and then they they are given freedom and permission to think about that further and to look at ways that other people um, responded to it. One thing that that I, I love radio classics, by the way. So I'll give a shout out to my friend Greg Bell over at Radio Classics. Um, I listen to radio pl plays a lot, um, and I remember during the time of McCarthyism, when a Dalton Trumbo wrote a book called Johnny Got His Gun, and that book changed my life as well. And it's really kind of a nice connection to the Church of the Brethren um, in, in um, conscientious objecting conversations. Shani Got His Gun is about a young uh, man who was in war and he comes back and he's alive, but he has no arms, no legs and no face. He has no way to communicate except that he feels the touch of a nurse, right? But we hear what he's experiencing. We hear his thoughts. That's what this book is all about. McCarthyism tried to stop that book, right? And as a matter of fact, James Cagney, the actor, read it on radio, and then he got blacklisted, as did Dalton Trumbo. But that book had so much to say about another aspect of war that needed to be considered. And I do think it changed a lot of people's lives. So yes, I, I believe in that. And I believe that the most important thing that happens after an experience, a shared experience in theater or movies, is that people do want to go somewhere and talk about it later and see where that leads them. I love that you've named uh, a couple particular stories and also the power of stories in general to invite other stories that we are given the freedom and permission to explore our own stories. Um, after all, you said we're all just made it, we're just sort of a pile of stories. That's all we are. And when we get together, we don't say, I love racing. We say, let me tell you a story about a time I went to the race track. The weirdest example for me to give. I've never, I'm not a big racing fan, but that's where my brain went. Uh, I'm still fascinated by the thought, though, that even the stories themselves are not necessarily the point, right? As I tell a story about my life, Aren't I really trying to invite you into some deeper understanding about who I am or what I experienced? Uh, what is the point of sort of a story? Is there some inherent invitation or exploration or something deep and profound or inherently spiritual or divine about a story? I'll, I'll take that. And then I think, Julie, I'll have something to say about that as well. Um, you know, because there was something that Julia said earlier, and actually, Matt, you alluded to that as well, um, about space. And um, when I, I have a master's in theater from Illinois State University, and there's a professor emeritus there now, John Kirk, was my instructor and my mentor. And he had a whole theory about that when it's, there's acting going on, it's not what comes from one actor and then another actor and then one actor and another actor. Those would just be talking heads. He talks about where, where it happens, where, 
where we really get to be a part of the experience is in that space between them. One offers and the other offers, and it's what happens in between that truly um, changes people. And you can see that magic happen. You know when you're seeing a live performance when it's not. It's very, very obvious when it's not. But when it does happen, you are so pulled into that experience and that moment. So the space between is a very important concept. Particularly in the Anabaptist circles, this is important to remember that we can do study on our own. We can have faith on our own, but you need that second person. You need that community to have that space between as we communicate about life or faith or the questions we have about anything. Uh, Julia, same question to you. The point isn't the poetry, right? If we're writing or reading poetry, how might a poetic experience help invite people into that space of, of re-wonderment, that space as we've been talking about of the blessed assurance of perhaps? Yeah, these are great questions. All sorts of things emerging, but the first is a quote that I say often, Rumi, that he said something like, I'm less interested in language, but more interested in the source from which language springs. And I think he says it capital S source. And um, I love that. I think it was actually in my entrance application to Bethany. Like that is what I want to explore here. Like, yes, I love words. That's fun. I love poems, but it's, it's that space, that source. What is it that this poem, the story um, bring us to within ourselves, within each other, within this space between. Um, they, I think of a few years ago, I was poet in residence at a um, Episcopal church. And at first people were like a little confused. Why do we have a poet in residence in our church? And I would bring a poem and read it every Sunday. And at first people, yeah, I could tell were kind of what's this? But by the end of the summer, you could like hear a pin drop in those moments. Like people were just, I could just feel energetically they were with me. And I think in a different way, I mean, the pap, the priest that did the sermons, the sermons were great too, but I often felt like people would say, oh, that poem said everything that the sermon said. It like, it, it was a different, there's an energetic, I think, to a poem or a story that can um, open up different space within us. And um, I think it helps us sink into the si a silence within ourselves. It helps us sink into our own memories. People often um, respond to my poems by sharing, you know, somebody that was talking, oh, I really loved this. And they went on and on to tell it about themselves. And they said, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I'm responding to your words by talking about myself. And I said, that is the biggest compliment. That is what I, I mean, that's for me, what, how poetry, I don't say this just like dramatically, but really did save my life because it, it opened up other people's words opened up space within me to be with what was capital R real <laughs> to be with those places that other language um, the more 
didactic didn't didn't do for me. And so I feel like, yes, it is all of that. It is in, it's inviting people into the wonder within themselves, the wonder of the world, the wonder of the space between us. Um, and so it's about the poem, but it's really about the poem of the capital P poem of who we are. Um, yeah. The capital P poem of who we are, the capital P poem or capital S story about our lives. Uh, we come quickly to a close uh, and very regrettably so. What a delightful and engaging conversation. Your roomy quote about the capital S source of words reminded me of a quote that we heard in a previous podcast on this series from prolific writer um, Anne Lamott. Standing in the forest, I didn't need perfect or complex ideas of theology. I just needed to surrender myself to whoever created the forest around me. To uh, adapt a quote you just offered, Julia, what does a poem or a story or nature or fill in the blank invite us to? I thought as a closing question, I could ask uh, each of you to respond in this series, we've explored the prayer several times, God beyond the God we name. Given all we have discussed, how might you respond again? Yeah, I am drawn again to what I just said about the capital P poem. I think something that I've really been musing on a lot is um, the verse in Ephesians 2.10 that says, for we are God's handiwork. And that word handiwork in Greek can be translated to poema, for we are God's poem. And so for me, God beyond the God we name, God, I think of God as poet. Um, and so if we think about all we've been talking about, poetics and story, what does it mean for God to be in the conversation with us as we're exploring of um, this of what a poem is, of what a story is that is spacious, full of permission, um, asking for rewonderment that is all about encouraging the perhaps. And so, yeah, just one, the one answer that arises, or not an answer, it's right, <laughs> it's an opening um, that's, yeah, God beyond the God we name as um, for me today is, is poet, um, is, a vast spaciousness invitation. And for me, relating the prayer, God beyond the God we name, I think um, it just goes back to what we've been talking about. It's that place where, Matt, I meet you in that space in between, and I meet Julia in that space between, and everyone I meet in that space between, but especially where I meet God in that space in between. Hey, Dunker Punks. I hope you enjoyed this panel as much as I did. If you're anything like me, you might find yourself going back to the beginning and listening all over again. I hope you enjoy 
uh, enjoyed this, and please join us next time in two weeks for our fourth and final installment in this series on Theopoetics. I asked Julia if she would close us out with one of her poems. I would love to. This is the poem, I Believe. I believe in not believing everything I think. When thoughts are my only means to an end, I tangle in sweaty bedsheets. Night crows linger. Do you believe in God? I know. I know a woodpecker skull, the hummingbird heartbeat, a symphony of crickets. I know the hush texture of an alpine lake, the peppered marriage of cinnamon and clove, the generous shudder after weeping. I know the grainy sway of a fiddle, the ghost of your fingers on my collarbone, the caress of just washed sheets. I believe through these great tangibles to the unseen. I believe all not labeled God is part of God. Maybe those discarded pieces are what we long for most. I believe we should all laugh about this much more. I believe God is nestled in the sacred crinkle of crow's feet around an elder's pooled eyes. I believe joy lines are etched from canals of tears, rivers through clay. I believe my ancestors are written in the furrows on my mother's forehead. And God is there too. I believe that since we all touch in the secret river, this poem, her laugh, that woodpecker, those tears, the fiddle hum, are all prayer, healing the great-grandmothers and the unborn. I believe that my children's faces will be a canvas of peace. How I inhabit my body will show them what I believe. I lie down in clover the field beyond beliefs.